Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrosley. On September the 11th, enemies of freedom committed an act of war against our country. Following the attacks of September 11, 2001, President George W. Bush declared a global war on terror. The only way to defeat terrorism as a threat to our way of life is to stop it, eliminate it, and destroy it where it grows. Nearly a generation later, U.S. foreign policy remains focused on degrading and destroying Islamist terrorist groups. Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda. As a candidate for president in 2016, Donald Trump vowed to end the endless wars in which the United States has been mired in in the Middle East and Afghanistan. Great nations do not fight endless wars. And in early October, Trump announced that U.S. troops would leave northern Syria. President Trump is drawing, once again, bipartisan backlash against his desire to pull U.S. troops out of northern Syria. The concerns there center around the Kurds. We never agreed to protect the Kurds for the rest of their lives. Just weeks later, Trump announced that U.S. special forces had killed the Islamic State's leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, and declared that the caliphate Baghdadi sought to create had been destroyed. Is the war on terror over? Our guest today says it is, as we know it. Hi! Hi, how are you? Hi, Karen, how are you? Karen Greenberg is the director of the Center for National Security at Fordham University. Welcome to our humble abode. Thank you. She is the author of several books, most recently Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State. We join her in her office at Fordham University today. Karen, I want to talk to you today about the war on terror. It's something that has shaped U.S. foreign policy since the 9-11 attacks. How did this mark as a departure from how U.S. foreign policy was conducted previously? What happened after the war on terror was that the apparatus of government, the national security state, which became extremely powerful right away, did things intentionally uh, with deception for the American people. The amount of secrecy that surrounded what went on, the amount of falsehoods that surrounded our going to war in Iraq, I wouldn't even distinguish that much between just foreign policy and domestic policy because in a way they got all wrapped up because so much of what went on at home was done in the name of national security by which the government meant protection from al-Qaeda and terrorism as it would affect Americans and the homeland. I think things changed vastly. I think they changed in substance. I think they changed in tone. Um, and I think we live with the legacy of the war on terror to this very moment. When you take a look back at the rise of how the War of Terror came about, it really came at a time when the United States really didn't face any global challengers. The Cold War had ended a decade earlier. And so if you're looking at that period economically and militarily, the United States was really unmatched. And many have argued that this lack of an enemy really confused U.S. foreign policymakers. So 9-11 happens. And George W. Bush sees radical Islam as our modern 21st century enemy, much like fascism or communism was in the 20th century. Was that a mistake? 
Well, we were attacked, and so it's hard to say it was a mistake. I think the deeper issue of what it means to have an enemy and how a country focuses itself and mobilizes itself in a coherent way was a gap that was left after the Cold War. I will say, however, that there, if you go back and look at foreign policy experts on the eve of 9-11, many of them are talking about China. As we're talking about China today, China as the next big superpower, China as the great power rivalry that we're going to have to figure out policies, economic and otherwise, to combat. So the vacuum was being filled. I think it would have very much been filled by China, both in rhetoric <clears throat> and to some extent in reality. And we're seeing that today. It's almost like this was the uh, terrorism episode, the war on terror, and now we're moving on to this, this great power rivalry. Islamic terrorism reared its head well before 9-11. Certainly, the United States came face-to-face -face with it in the bombings of its embassies in Kenya and Tanzania in 1998. And then you have the attack on the USS Cole in 2000. Did those responses enable 9-11? You know, I, I, I wouldn't say that. I would say it probably differently. I would say that there are ways in which 9-11, as we know now in retrospect, reading the 9-11 Commission report, reading other reports that came out of Congress, for example, the Joint Inquiry, that there were many steps which could have been taken to prevent it. If what you mean is, was the radicalization of al-Qaeda the result of how we responded to the embassy bombings and the coal bombing, I would say, I don't see that. Maybe somebody could create that narrative and, and that might, you know, have some um, persuasive elements to it. But I think more it was a growing threat that we did try to counter with law enforcement and with intelligence, uh, our intelligence agencies, and that uh, we failed. In terms of the deeper question you're asking, which is, did we foment more uh, radicalization by those two things? No, I think the deeper radicalization did have to do with what bin Laden and other al-Qaeda leaders were very clear about, which was our presence in the Middle East. And also this notion of our presence on the global stage as corporations with international actors. And I think it was a variety of memes that bin Laden picked up on that resonated very deeply throughout the Middle East. How we responded to the embassy bombings was to investigate it, to take it to court, right? To do things on the diplomatic level afterwards, to expand our law enforcement presence abroad, to really begin to think about how can we prevent such an, another attack like this. The way in which we did things after those bombings was much more by the book, <laughs> much more what we recognized as our system of defense response um, and lessons learned than what we did after 9-11. We need effective investigative tools against terrorism. As we wage the war on terror overseas, we're also going after the terrorists here at home. And one of the most important tools we have used to protect the American people is the Patriot Act. Our ability to prevent another catastrophic attack on American soil would be more difficult, if not impossible, without the Patriot Act. After 9-11, how did the response change? There were so many things that changed after 9-11, and I can sort of go through the litany of them, and then I'll 
definitely there'll be more. The first one was the immediate delegation of power to the president in a way that is specified in the Constitution as, you know, the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. But the degree to which that had coattails so that the power of the president nullified the power of the courts for the next decade and more, they were willing to say, we're not going to go near these issues. You bring something to us, whether it's surveillance policy or detention policy that steps on the, steps on the powers of the president, we would defer to the national security experts on this, and we're not going to talk about this in terms of the law. Detention policy is one place where the courts actually eventually did weigh in, even the Supreme Court. Um, and the same thing with Congress, this sort of not completely uncontested, but the delegation of powers to the president. So that's the biggest thing that changed. Once that changed, once the executive is empowered the way it was after 9-11, a whole host of other things that could happen that have to do with aggressive attempts to defend the country from another uh, 9-11. And that became, if, if you could you could ask for more powers in whatever agency you wanted, Treasury, Defense, Homeland Security when we got it, um, Justice, etc. And you could say that it was to prevent another 9-11 attack. That was an impossible argument to counter on any constitutional and legal grounds for a very long time. Let's talk about the executive. On October 27th, Donald Trump announced the death of ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi at the hands of U.S. Special Forces. Does that mean the final defeat of ISIS as Trump has declared? It probably doesn't mean the final defeat of, of ISIS. ISIS immediately announced another uh, leader who really nobody knew about, but somebody who was considered to be the um, person next to Baghdadi, so kind of the natural heir to what this position is. But that has nothing to do with the real question, which is, you know, is ISIS really no longer the threat that we thought it was? When President Trump ran for office, when he was a candidate, he talked constantly about defeating ISIS, that it was enough already, that we were going to get ourselves out of this endless war and and defeat them. And his words were, you know, typically graphic. We're going to crush them. We're going to, you know, immediately after he took power, unbeknownst to most because of so much else that was going on in the political world in Washington and challenging Trump, he um, authorized missile strikes and drogue strikes at at an immensely rapid pace. And so there was a continual bombardment of al-Qaeda almost from the day this president took office. Even more so than Obama? Yes. Yes. And and so along the way, he would say, we're defeating them, we're crushing them. And then finally, he and uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders said, they're done. They're absolutely done. We declare defeat. And that was, you know, maybe a year, a year and a half into the presidency. They had already established the fact that the caliphate was destroyed. The reality is, I think, much more complicated. The other death that's important to talk about is Hamza bin Laden. There were a number of experts over the past year who said, you think terrorism is over? Let me tell you, Osama bin Laden's son, Hamza bin Laden, is on the rise, and he is going to bring back al-Qaeda, and we need to be vigilant, and we need to be aware. And there was this constant, detailed look into his rhetoric, his motions, his associates, and then he was killed. So you have this prior to Baghdadi, right? And so there's a sense of more questioning, what does this actually mean? 
ISIS may have lost some key leaders, but its online presence remains strong. It's created one of the most sophisticated propaganda machines of any terrorist organization. And that puts U.S. tech companies in the middle of what may be an impossible mission, fighting ISIS online. Online magazines, the use of social media, terrorist Twitter accounts. President Obama told global leaders this week that he wants to shut down the ISIS propaganda machine, which produces as many as 90,000 posts on Twitter, YouTube, and other social media platforms every day. You talk about how Trump upped the drone strikes and really wanted to defeat ISIS. And when you take a look at how the war on terror has been conducted, it's really been conducted militarily. And yet organizations like al-Qaeda and ISIS have gained traction through social media, where they really strike a chord with many disaffected young men and women. Has the United States been battling terrorism on the wrong plane? I think that a lot of officials would say that we're not up to the challenge yet of the social media recruitment. And that's why you see so much discussion going on with the Twitters and Facebooks of the world, like what are you putting out there? Should you control other people's free speech. I mean, it's really getting to the heart at, at much of, in a much more sort of intractable way than even the earlier stages of the war on terror. But it is a legacy of that same conversation. What is the balance between living in a free and liberal democracy and protecting ourselves against um, real uh, threats. In terms of the social media thing, I I think it's a much bigger problem than al-Qaeda or jihadist terrorism. It is a problem of inspiring anger, hatred, and violence among more groups than we can name. To just talk about it in the framework of jihadi terrorism seems to me to miss the mark of what the real danger is. Because one thing we've seen in this country, particularly with the ISIS individuals, is that some of them first wanted to join a militia, then they wanted to join a hate group, and finally they ended up with ISIS. It wasn't the direct you know, recruitment of this message resonates with me in a way. It was where they could find a home for an anger um, and often a will to violence. And we still live with that. But their anger is also rooted in being on the margins, right? They, I mean, there's still this sense that they're either 100%. unemployed or that they don't have opportunities. And the social media is just a catalyst for them to connect with these messages, whether it's a militia or ISIS itself. Yes, but that raises the question of maybe we should attend to the fact that we have so many people on the margins and on the fringes that feel disempowered. We have an eviscerated middle class. We have student debt that is crippling um, our 20-year-olds our and our 30-year-olds. We have um, people who live their lives in terror of not being able to feed their children. We have people who can't take care of their uh, parents who are elderly. We're crumbling as a society in terms of social uh, services. And that's not unintentional. The dismantling of the New Deal, which has marked the last, the, the years that have coincided, it turns out, with the war on terror years, has left more and more people unhappy, I think psychologically destabilized, I think um, physically uh, challenged. And we have a country that is in complete and utter disarray in terms of offering help, 
hope, healing. Messages would not resonate with these people if these people had jobs. They wouldn't resonate with these people if they didn't feel like they couldn't go to college because their parents didn't have $2 billion. It wouldn't resonate with people if they felt like they had a viable life where they could own a home and take care of their family. So I understand you know, the other side of it, but I think it is really short-sighted to just keep saying, you know, we'll beat this to death by making sure this message doesn't get out. People that are alone and isolated and sick and, and responsible for other people that they can't take care of are not just going to go away because the internet, should it happen, gets shut down uh, from some messages. It's not going to happen. They'll find another way. They're unhappy. Karen, I want to switch over to the impact of the global war on terror. And the supposed goal of the war on terror has been to protect democracy and freedom. And yet we've seen how the war has really taken those things away. And you mentioned that earlier in in our discussion. What has it done to American power? Well, I'm not sure the war on terror did what to American power what President Trump has done to American power. It would be hard. I'd say they're related. What the United States did to its own image, let's just talk about that as an element of power, um, was devastating that the Abu Ghraib photos, the persistent picture that was shown of the Guantanamo detainees in their orange jumpsuits, the war in Iraq and the way it actually just pulled the plug and then you just saw the Middle East just sort of descend into chaos that we live with for this day. I mean, how can you look at that and not think, oh my goodness, you know, what on earth did this mega power do with all of the power and all of the words about their, their goodness in the world and their creating the charter for the UN and being behind human rights? Where, where did that go? How did that happen? Um, so in terms of the, the United States image and actually United States reality abroad, that's, you know, very much of a, a problem. This, we're living in a different world now, and though it's related to the war on terror, it's not quite the same, which is that this, we're going to attack you, we're not going to attack you. This attempt of trying to have one state one policy one day and one policy the next day, this taking us out of the Paris Accords, take us, taking us out of the um, JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, moving us away from your, our traditional allies in Europe, just sort of poking our allies and enemies in the eye sort of at the same time, has taken it to a new level. Maybe it began with the fissures in the war on terror, but I think this this may be actually taking on its own uh, dimensions and shape. So is the war on terror over? So is the war on terror over? The war on terror that led up to and then was truly begun in a major way with 9-11 attacks is, in my mind, come to a logical uh, stopping point. That doesn't mean that there aren't pieces of it that will be taken into the future in a new shape and a new way and with new grievances and new targets. Um, But this particular period of time for the United States, as the United States maneuvered its way through it, recreated its institutions to deal with it and defined itself, is very much over. And part of that is because of the real circumstances of of the war on terror in terms of the the, uh, destruction of the caliphate, the killing of bin Laden. Laden, the killing of Hamza bin Laden, and the killing of al-Baghdadi. But part of it's also because time has moved on, and the nature of the threat is different, and the role of America in the world is different. So I think what you're seeing is the United States very much wants to 
led by President Trump, declare an end to this period of time, but not necessarily to the structures, the powers, the legal deviations, and, and the other claims to power that were unleashed by the war on terror. In other words, the war on terror created a different way of being in the world for this country and for the executive and the president. And I'm not so sure that those powers will dissipate. In fact, I'm sure they won't, just because the caliphate's been defeated and, and this period of terrorism, as we understood it, has really given way to a whole different set of factors, one of which I just want to say is something I referred to earlier, the rise of the state actor. So would you say that Donald Trump perhaps inadvertently ended the war on terror? I don't think it's inadvertent. I think he said it as a candidate. He said it as a president. He gave the orders to his, the people who worked for him. That was his intent. But I also think it was headed, as I say it, in that direction anyway. But it happened on his watch, and it was his intention. And where we take it from now, how much we want to focus on state actors versus non-state actors or the combination of the two, I still would argue is a different uh, era. So how has the past 20 years of this global war on terror influenced how we respond to other great powers, and in particular, China? I think there's a couple of things. One is that it's not just about China. It's about what it means to take an apparatus of state, what we call our national security state, right, which involves those agencies that think about national security and keeping the country safe on a variety of levels, economically, militarily, etc. What did it mean to take so much of government and turn it towards terrorism? and non-state actors. We don't know, I don't know the answer to that question, and I think it would be a great question to ask. To what extent are our institutions in Washington as they function, our institutions of, of national security, do they, to what extent do they need to be refocused, maybe restaffed? Certainly thinking about what the shift from non-state actors and terrorism to great power rivalries, China and elsewhere, is extremely important. And we haven't had the moment to pause, rethink, reflect, rebuild, restore, whatever we want to do. I guess that's what the university is for. We're supposed to take a step back and provide people the space to really think about this. Karen, we end each episode by asking our guests this question. What gives you hope? My grandchildren and other children. That is that is what gives me hope. There is no group of individuals that are adults and in power that I look to and say, that's going to find our way out. I think we're in trouble. It's hard to recognize the degree of trouble we're in. I think that um, we have done a great disservice to the millennial generation and that, that our effort should be to help them, which gets me to my grandchildren because those are the fruits of the millennial generation, I think. <laughs> and um, that you have a very unusual situation where you have older and older and older people running the show and younger and younger and younger people getting lost in what's happening because of the, the instability, chaos, mixed messaging. And so my hope is that they're going to, and we see it now, we see it with some young politicians, we see it with from young thought leaders, they're going to rise to the occasion. I love when they roll their eyes. I love when they see somebody talk who's saying something very smart and very interesting, and they're like, right. Okay, boomer. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> That's it. Karen, thank you. Thank you. That was fun. 
was totally fun. That was Karen Greenberg. She's the director of the Center for National Security at Fordham University and the author of Rogue Nation, The Making of the Security State. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brusalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Jonathan Stein and Rachel Dunham.